Our next lesson comes from 2 Kings, reading from the fifth chapter, the story about the healing of Naaman. Let us continue to listen for the word of God, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, that is the king of Aram, just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, and he said, Am I God to give death or life? that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But, Elisha said, uh, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to do was to wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company. He came and stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives whom I serve, I will accept nothing. He urged him to accept, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God except the Lord. But may the Lord pardon your servant on one account. When my master goes into the house in Remnon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow down in the house of Remnon, when I do bow down in the house of Remnon, may the Lord pardon your servant on this one count. And he said to him, Go in peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I welcome those who are joining us in worship today by live streaming. We are glad that you're out there and 
consider you a critical part of the life and ministry of this congregation. As probably most of you know, we have a Syrian problem. Not just in the United States, but certainly in the Middle East and a problem that affects many nations within the world. Most of it centers around the mad president of Syria today, Bashar al-Assad, who is not averse to slaughtering his own people if they in so much as resist him or oppose him in some way. And his leadership has resulted in many, many displaced persons. Some have estimated as many as half the population of Syria and many villages as well, uh, creating a worldwide immigration plight. But this is not the Syrian dilemma I have in mind this morning. Notice that the title of the sermon is not a Syrian dilemma or the Syrian dilemma, but, but rather our Syrian dilemma. What is ours? Well, we have a Syrian joy. Let me mention that first. Uh, do you know that for three weeks in a row, our lay readers have been members of our church who have a Syrian ancestry? We may be the only Presbyterian church in America that could say that. <laughs> With the Johns and Vartanians in the church. So uh, we celebrate that. But in the land where some of their ancestors came from, there is a problem, a political problem. But we all have a problem that has a Syrian connection. And it's not our problem alone. It's a problem of all people within this world, perhaps. Certainly, it's an American problem, and it's a human dilemma. And it goes all the way back 3,000 years before uh, our time to the days of Elisha and Naaman, called Naaman the Syrian. The, the, word, the biblical word for Syria is Aram. So when you ring, read about the Arameans or the king of uh, Aram, they're talking about Syria of old. And I believe that this man, Naaman, could well be a symbol of our age, a metaphor for the kind of person that all of us usually aspire to be. After all, he was a man of great standing in his country, in his community, a trusted confidant and companion of the king of Aram, a commander of the Syrian army, a man of prominence, a man of influence. There's only one slight problem. One fly in the ointment, if you will, and that is the fact that, regrettably, Naaman was a leper. A mighty warrior, to be sure, but a leper nonetheless. And when you add that little qualifier of leprosy to his resume, it basically cancels out all the accolades and honors and accomplishments that had accompanied his life. In most ways, most other ways, any Syrian would have gladly switched places with Naaman. But given the fact that he had leprosy, there was not even a slave in Syria who would want to be in Naaman's skin, literally or figuratively. Oh yes, Naaman had everything a person seemingly could desire. But alas, he had leprosy also, which being translated meant he had nothing. And so Naaman longed for the healing and the wholeness that none of his laurels could provide him. I think Naaman's story is a parable of the human predicament. It hits people like us especially hard. People like us sometimes think that we are maybe predestined for privilege or position or possessions. 
Like Naaman, we give ourselves, don't we, to making a name for ourselves. We, we study hard, we work hard, we play hard. We try to make all the right connections in society. We seek to move up some mythical ladder of success as defined by other people in the desperate hopes that once we arrive, then we will discover that inner sense of peace and wholeness and fulfillment that we equate with salvation. Many Americans equate success with salvation. Salvation is the word, the root of it means wholeness, contentment, fulfillment. Think of the word salve, which soothes an ointment. To be saved is to be whole. And because we crave that, we invest much of our time, energy, and money in attending the right schools, wearing the right kind of clothes, meeting the right kind of people, joining the right kind of clubs, living in the right kind of neighborhoods, driving the right kind of cars, joining the right kind of churches, voting the right kind of way, all of which is designed to convince others and ourselves that we are persons of worth and significance, which hopefully everyone eventually will discover to be true. And so we carefully construct our resumes, build an impressive list of credentials and accomplishments, only to add at the bottom of the page, but we have leprosy. Of course, it may not literally be leprosy, but it doesn't matter. We may have all the right stuff from a cultural view, from the world's view, and still lack the wholeness and the peace and the fulfillment that we had thought our achievements would grant us. So Naaman the Syrian, a symbol of our age, and a stereotype of so many upwardly mobile American citizens. Yes, he was a mighty warrior, but still a leper. We too are a great people, aren't we? As a culture, as a nation, we're mighty men and women of science and technology. We have harnessed the power of the atom and the sun. We've conquered many fatal diseases in our generation. Fifty years ago, we sent men and machines into space and walked on the moon. We've created satellite communication. We can pick up the phone and talk to people on the opposite side of the earth with the same kind of ease that we can to the person in the next room. We have created a society that is the envy of most of the world. We too are a great people. But despite our knowledge, our skills, our achievements, our accomplishments, this marvelous civilization we have fashioned sometimes seems to be crumbling from within. As a people, we have more and enjoy it less than probably any previous generation. For the first time in the lives of many of us here today, we're not so certain of the future of our nation, not because of outside threats, but because of interior threats. Marriages and families falling apart, disintegrating, moral vacuum in the highest places of leadership, We've polluted the environment. The wealth of this land is continually being concentrated, concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. The gap between the rich and the poor continues to widen. Charles Murray, in his book, Coming Apart, explores this disturbing class separation in America. And so it is that in spite of all our accomplishments and our credentials, there's precious little evidence today that the current generation of Americans is any more spiritually whole or personally content 
than previous generations. And what is true of us as a people is true of us as individuals too. The only difference being we are far more adept at individuals in concealing our personal discontent and sickness. After all, we want other people to think that we have arrived, that we've made it. We want other people to believe that our careers, our homes, our possessions, our professions, our marriages, our various achievements and successes have brought us the fulfillment and the wholeness we sought. But we can't fool ourselves. When we lie awake at night when no one is watching, some disease as hideous as leprosy may be eating away at our souls. We've tried to save ourselves, and we have failed miserably. We're out of touch with God, out of touch with our neighbors, out of touch with our better selves. Yes, we are great individuals, but we have a problem, many of us. So let's at least give old Naaman the credit for recognizing that at least he needed help beyond himself if he was to be restored. If he was to find the wholeness and the healing that he sought. And despite his pride and his arrogance, he is willing at least for a while to come down off his high horse long enough to take the advice of this little Jewish maiden who was convinced that back in Israel there was a prophet of God, a God who was capable of curing Naaman's leprosy. I wonder how many of us are open to the possibility that God might just be the solution to our discord and our desperation and discontent. Granted, Naaman had no idea of what this God of Israel was like. It's rather humorous, humorous and looking at how he goes about his search for healing. He sets off on this search for God nonetheless. He thought that he was looking for this God, but the truth of the matter is that God must have been looking for him and found him in the witness of that little slave girl who told him about the God of Israel. And so he leaves his native Syria with a wad of cash in his pocket, a truckload of elaborate gifts for his potential benefactor. He must have thought that God was some kind of exclusive dermatologist whose time and skills could be available to the highest bidder. Now, he was somebody, this Naaman. And he didn't have to rely on Medicaid. He could afford private health insurance and only the best. And he expected Elisha, the prophet, and his God to recognize this. He was no run-of-the-mill Syrian soldier. No sirree. Naaman was a man of substance and power and prestige and position. He could not only afford good medical care, but by Jove, a person of his status deserved it. He may have thought that he had a claim on God's goodness, and mercy because of who he was. So Naaman finally arrives at Elisha's house amid all the pomp and ceremony that attended a person of his stature. And he arrives with his chariots and his gifts, an entourage of horses and what have you that would put to shame presidential caravans of our day. He had taken great pains to go through the pro proper pro protocol to get letters of reference from the king of Syria and from the king of Israel. As if that mattered to God whether he would heal him or not. And here is where the story takes a humorous and delightful turn. Here is where all of our pious and proud pretensions are shattered. And we see something of the character of God. And something of the nature of the human condition. And something about what constitutes the nature of salvation as well. 
The prophet Elisha is so unimpressed by Naaman's vaunted pride, by his letters of reference and his adherence to diplomatic protocol, and so underwhelmed by Naaman's personal credentials, his credentials, his curriculum vitae, if you will, he doesn't even come out of his house to greet this man of substance from Syria face to face. Rather, Elisha sends a messenger out to Naaman, telling him to do something quite simple and in Naaman's mind quite absurd. Just go and bathe in the river Jordan seven times and you will be clean. Now Naaman's nose was really out of joint. He was angry. He was insulted. He expected Elisha to come out and put on a big show, wave his hand around, do something dramatic that befitted a person of his standing. Didn't Elisha know that Naaman was not some ordinary Jewish leper? Did the prophet not understand that Naaman was somebody? He'd made a name for himself. By the very idea, washing in the Jordan River. There were far better rivers than this back in Damascus, he says to his servants. What Naaman eventually had to realize is what each of us must come to terms with, and that is when we go to God for cleansing and healing, for forgiveness, we come on God's terms, not on our own. God is not greatly impressed with our credentials or moved by our sense of our own personal righteousness. No matter who we are or what we've done or where we've been, every single one of us is but a sinner deserving nothing from God. Consequently, we have nothing to bargain with. No position from which we can negotiate with the divine. God's grace is freely given, but it cannot be purchased. It is costly. But it is available to prince and pauper alike. It can be received, but it can't be earned. Though we might wish that that was the case, because we would like to really be in a position to buy our own tradition, to save ourselves through what we do rather than through the grace that God provides. The story of Naaman's healing reminds me in many ways of the story of the conversion of St. Paul that takes place in the book of Acts. True, one was coming from Damascus and one was headed toward Damascus, but the two men had much in common prior to their conversion. Saul had spent his life trying to win and earn God's approval. In time, as a faithful and obedient Jew, he had chalked up quite a list of credentials. His resume put Naaman's to the shame. Saul was a Pharisee's Pharisee. He had gone through all the rites of passage in Judaism. He was knowledgeable. He was zealous. And in his own mind, he was quite righteous, too. He was right in saying in our morning lesson that if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. A high opinion of himself, right? He was not lacking in self-esteem either, but he too was in need of cleansing and wholeness and redemption. He too lacked the salvation and the wholeness that would make him complete. Saul's encounter with the living God on the road to Damascus changed forever his perception of what made him acceptable in the eyes of God or what made him great as a person. 
after his encounter with the risen Christ, the Apostle Paul admits readily that all of these things that he previously thought were so important constitute nothing in comparison with knowing Christ and being known by him. Paul says that all of his personal righteousness he now regards as garbage, as rubbish, when compared with the righteousness that comes from God by grace through faith. The scriptures are clear, my friends. The conversion of Saul, who was to become Paul, only confirms what the healing of Naaman underscored a thousand years before that. None of us has a claim on God. It is God who has a claim on us. In time, Naaman would swallow his pride and do what Elisha had instructed him to do. He had to get over himself, if you will. Get over the fact that this Hebrew prophet would not come out of his house and make a big show of the healing of this important man. Eventually, Naaman could not escape the logic of his servant who said, if he had asked you to do something great and heroic, you would have done it. Why don't you do this simple thing that he asked of you? And he does so. He goes and dips seven times in the river Jordan and his flesh is restored and he is clean in more ways than one. Now I'm quite sure that there are a number of very important people here this morning or listening in by TV may not appreciate the substance of this story and what I'm saying about it. But if any of us is approaching God, the God of the universe who fashioned us and who in Jesus Christ has redeemed us, if we're approaching God thinking God's going to be the least bit impressed by what we've done or who we are or how popular we are or our curriculum vitae, then we have another thought coming. It does not matter what your name is, what your work is, where you stand on the social registry, your race and your ethnic origin is of no concern to God. It matters not who you are or where you've been or what you do. All that matters, if it's healing that you're after, if it's wholeness that you want in your life, that you confess your unworthiness, accept the redeeming grace offered to you through faith, and begin to live and give evidence to both your confession and your acceptance of that grace in your daily life. And begin to do the simple things that God asks his people to do, like loving him with heart and soul and mind and strength. And loving our neighbor as ourselves. Our Syrian dilemma is an American dilemma. No, it's a human dilemma. And yet, through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the solution for the dilemma has been provided. Just like the cure for the illness has been provided. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, give us the grace to open our lives to the cleaning and renewal that you wish to bestow upon us. Forbid that we should continually fall into the trap of trying to save ourselves or succumb to the temptation of believing that we or anyone else must somehow merit your love or deserve your mercy. As we search for you, for the wholeness that we crave, grant us the vision that in Jesus Christ you have already sought and found us if we but accept what you offer. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.